History of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, I am Trevor Cully, and this is episode 100. Wow. Just wow. On one hand, I genuinely can't believe I made it here. Four years, 100 episodes, 160 individual audio posts. The first thing to say is thank you all so much. Without listener encouragement and support, I have no doubt that I would have burnt out ages ago, even if I do love ancient Persia more than most other topics. On the other hand, I can't believe I'm a hundred episodes deep into this thing and still talking about the Achaemenids. But here we are just a single step away from the beginning of the end. To celebrate episode 100, I had to come up with something. But it's not really the time to do another AMA, because that's way better suited to, like, episode 125, when I'm going to be doing a lot more wrap-up. Instead, I am going to give my take on ranking the top 10 Achaemenid kings. This is my search for the king of kings of kings, the greatest king, the Vazrakista Kushayathia, to put it in Old Persian terms. But of course, it wouldn't be me unless I went more in depth than even I think is necessary. So let's just get going with seven honorable mentions. Seven is a sacred number, after all. First up, we have the least Achaemenid and least kingly contender, Artabanus of Hyrcania, commander of the royal guard under Xerxes I. Artabanus was neither an Achaemenid nor a king per se, which is why he's the very first one to get out of the way. Yet he also did a much better job of actually claiming control of the empire than our other honorable mentions. He also attempted to be king, at least according to a few Greek sources. For those that need a reminder, 
Artabanus was the mastermind behind the plot to assassinate Xerxes and bring Artaxerxes I to the throne. For seven months, he acted like an unofficial regent to Artaxerxes and the de facto power behind the throne. Finally, a counter-conspiracy of some of the original conspirators who opposed Artabanus' plan to crown himself revealed the truth of Xerxes' death. This ultimately led Artaxerxes I to kill Artabanus and stage a battle against his sons. Artabanus sort of pairs with Histospes, Artaxerxes I's elder brother who ruled as satrap of Bactria and briefly challenged him for power only to be defeated. I bring him up because, frankly, he qualifies just as much as most of these honorable mentions who are officially counted as kings. Next up, we have everyone's favorite golden child, Cyrus the Younger. I called him King Cyrus III and did a whole live show about him being king in an alternate timeline. Of course, he gets a shout-out. Of our more dubious honorable mentions, Cyrus the Younger came closest to succeeding on a number of occasions. He had some of the most powerful provinces in the empire behind him, functionally occupied the entire western half, and very nearly won the throne in the Battle of Kunaxa. While Cyrus the Younger never actually got a chance to sit on the big seat, he was a genuine contender, and by all accounts ruled as king in all but name from Sardis. To a certain degree, he's like a more successful version of Artabazanes, the eldest son of Darius the Great, who challenged Xerxes I's right to rule, once again from the satrapy of Bactria. While Cyrus claimed the right to rule as the firstborn after his father became king, Artabazanes claimed his right through straightforward primogeniture. But... Unlike Cyrus, it's unclear if Artabosnes ever actually fought his brother. Sticking with Darius II's family, we have the trio of Xerxes II, Sogdianus, and Arsites. Probably in reverse order if I were to actually rank them. Xerxes II, the only full-blooded Persian son of Artaxerxes I, oversaw his father's funeral preparations in 424, and that's it. He ruled for a grand total of 45 days before his probably elder half-brother Sogdianus had him and his mother murdered. Xerxes II's influence never extended beyond Parsa itself, but he was also the most legitimate Achaemenid heir at the time. Sogdianus ruled for six months after killing his brother, and most of that time was preparing for a civil war that never came. His brother Ochus, now calling himself Darius II, was proclaimed king in Babylon and had the backing of Armenia, Babylonia, Egypt, and Media. Territorially, the two sides were officially similar, but Darius and his wife Parasatis just lured Sogdianus into a trap and killed him, using hot ashes. Arsites is the odd one out here. 
Theseus presents Xerxes II and Sogdianus as proper kings and gives the lengths of their reigns, and forever after, historians have followed that lead. He doesn't do this for Arsites, maybe because the other two actually ruled Parsa or claimed the power before Darius II beat them. Despite all of that, Arsites was also a son of Artaxerxes I and challenged Darius for power from his own base in Assyria soon after Sogdianus' death. By all metrics, besides actually being in the home province, he's at least the equal of Xerxes II, and frankly a more competitive person to put on the list. Arsites at least won a few battles. The penultimate honorable mention goes to King Artaxerxes V, the very last Achaemenid to claim the royal titles. I suspect a lot of people don't know exactly who I'm talking about here, and I think you'll enjoy the surprise when I get to it. So I'm not going to say much here, but suffice to say that Artaxerxes V was a king on the run, fleeing from Alexander the Great until he was betrayed and murdered by his nominal allies. No, this is not an alternate name for Darius III. Unlike Darius III, Artaxerxes here didn't even have access to most of the empire, just bits and pieces of Iran and Central Asia. The final honorable mention slot is for Bardia. He's definitely the most successful of the honorable mentions, and if we had a bit more information, there's a good chance he'd rank fairly high in the real list. Unfortunately, we only know about Bardia through Darius the Great's Behistun inscription and Greek sources based on that inscription. He only reigned for a few months to maybe a year, and even that is marred by Darius's admittedly dubious story that Bardia was secretly replaced by the Magos Gaumata. There are hints that he tried to pull the Achaemenid Empire back from the brink of a mass tax revolt, but ultimately, we only know that he was briefly king before being murdered by Darius, and that whatever reforms he was trying to implement didn't work because the empire immediately imploded. Now that brings me to the true top 10, the kings of kings of kings. Number 10 goes to Artaxerxes IV. We're only just about to meet him in the narrative, but if you happen to already know anything about him, then you know why he's at the bottom. After Artaxerxes III and his sons were all murdered, spoilers, the only survivor was Arsaces, the youngest of Artaxerxes III's sons. The eunuch Bagoas made him a puppet king, which 
coincided with the crucial moment of Philip II of Macedon launching an invasion of Anatolia, and there was absolutely no royal response. After a couple of years on the throne, Artaxerxes IV was nearing his majority and started trying to make contacts with other members of the court to oust Bagoas, only for Bagoas to kill him too. If we had more information about Bardia, they would definitely be switching places. Number 9 goes to Darius III. Technically speaking, we have already met him, but again, I don't know if many people know his backstory, so I'm gonna downplay it for surprise sake. Between Artaxerxes III murdering his own brothers and then Bagoas murdering all of his sons, the eunuch had to go all the way back to the descendants of Darius II to pick a suitable puppet. He had tons of options at this point through Darius's daughter's lineage, and apparently chose poorly. Darius III quickly had Bagoas executed, put down a revolt in Egypt, and started putting a very fragile empire back together again. Unfortunately, he made a couple miscalculations in dealing with Macedon. Darius III is, of course, the arch-nemesis of Alexander the Great, and based on the epithets there and general knowledge, you can guess how it goes. Darius III was off to a good start. In any other political situation, or even with a slightly less competent king of Macedon, he had the potential to usher in a new era of Achaemenid stability. It just was not to be. Eight and seven were a toss-up. It came down to two options with great triumphs and terrible disasters on their resumes, both of which resulted in mass destabilization of the empire. It was a very hard decision for me. But ultimately, the number 8 spot goes to Artaxerxes II. His reign starts with a success story. He endeared the people to him over the course of four mostly peaceful years. Then he defeated Cyrus the Younger at Kunaxa, ending a civil war before it could escalate and preserving the line of succession. He followed up with the war against Sparta, first successfully using financial pressure to heat up the Corinthian War and force the Spartan king Agesilus out of Anatolia. Then he kept up the pressure on the anti-Spartan side for years. It went on longer than desired, but eventually, just as it looked like Sparta would crumble, Artaxerxes made a play to prevent any new hegemon from emerging. He backed Sparta in the final confrontation, bringing the war to an end and allowing Persia to dictate the king's peace. All of that is well and good, and look, I'm not gonna ding Artaxerxes for Egypt going into revolt or Cyprus going up in flames under Evagoras. If we want to blame a specific king, both of those events started in 401, which makes them more Cyrus the Younger and Darius II's faults. However, Artaxerxes II kept throwing these half-hearted attempts at both targets, all through the 390s to 370s. No fewer than five Persian armies dashed against the rocks of undermanned, undersupplied, and underprepared wars, 
trying to open a second theater in the Aegean with no navy. Maybe you can forgive it in the 90s, but by the 370s, Egypt was multiple pharaohs deep into independence. It took the full force of the newly conquered empire to take Egypt the first time, and Artaxerxes kept half-heartedly throwing his satraps at it. That last point is the real disaster. The man burned through governors for the slightest insubordination in supposedly autonomous military commands, and seems to have started executing underprepared subordinates for failing to win wars they simply didn't have the capacity to fight. Rather than taking charge and directing things himself, Artaxerxes II allowed the military capacity of these autonomous satraps to balloon out of control, even after direct threats to their territory were settled. Yet, he still threatened their lives for failure. It was a recipe for disaster. The great satraps' revolt threw the Western Empire into disarray, opened the door to Egyptian invasion, and provided an opening in Greece for Macedon to start building up power. Then, just to cap it off, Artaxerxes botched his own succession. Rather than share authority with a slightly younger, more active member of his family and allow them to build up their own authority, his own son was convinced to attack him. Meanwhile, his other sons were at each other's throats as Ochus, soon to be Artaxerxes III, carved a bloody path through his half-siblings that ended in mass fratricide. Artaxerxes III was able to reel things in, but his father had left the empire on the precipice of multiple disasters. Seven then goes to Cambyses. Technically, Cambyses II, but I didn't include the pre-imperial kings in my ranking. And I can hear it now. But Cambyses conquered Egypt. He was unfairly maligned by Herodotus. That's all true. Though, not being a psychopath and destroying your newly conquered province is really just a net zero. It's been a while, four full years, so here's the refresher. Cambyses was the eldest son of Cyrus the Great, the first man to inherit the Persian Empire. We don't know much about the first five years of his rule, but it seems that he consolidated his father's gains, probably including getting revenge against the Saka who killed Cyrus. Cambyses then embarked on the conquest of Egypt, first by constructing the original Persian navy and taking control of Cyprus, then the invasion of Egypt itself. He brought the Egyptian Admiral Wejahoreznet over to his side, and with Egypt's ports and ships open to Persia, Cambyses swiftly besieged the fortress of Pelusium, including the famous and likely untrue story of using cats as shields to dissuade the Egyptian spears. Then it was off to Memphis, which he besieged and captured, taking the pharaoh Samtik III as prisoner. Samtik was shown amnesty in exchange for surrender, while Cambyses conquered northern Nubia, but the ex-pharaoh soon led a revolt which failed and ended in his own execution. It all sounds great, 
but Cambyses soon got word that his brother Bardia had usurped the throne back in Persia and set off to deal with that in 522, only to die of more or less natural causes in Syria. Why had Bardia rebelled, and why is Cambyses so low on the list? Well, because the empire exploded. Sure, it didn't happen until Darius killed Bardia, but Greek references to tax amnesty and Darius's reference to restoring places of worship strongly suggest that something was up. Everybody rebelled all at once, apparently trying to break away from an empire that was draining their finances after 30 straight years of conquest. Cambyses did exactly what was expected of him, but that was not the best policy for imperial stability. Runaway noble independence, loosely defined obligations, and unevenly distributed tribute burdens were pushing the empire towards chaos, and Cambyses did nothing to mitigate it. If anything, he made it worse. The only reason Cambyses ranks above Artaxerxes II is the fact that his conquest of Egypt did make it easier for later kings to defeat Egyptian rebels, and the addition of Egypt was a major boon to the empire for the rest of its history. A boon which Artaxerxes II did not take seriously enough. 6 and 5 were also a bit of a debate mostly because they are father and son, and it's hard to decide how much of what was going on in Greece by the 460s should be blamed on one or the other. Ultimately, though, Xerxes I just ranks a bit lower. Xerxes, like so many others in these lower tiers, got off to a good start. He defeated an Egyptian revolt and a Babylonian revolt, and a fraternal revolt. He built most of Persepolis. He added the men of Akufakia and the Dahai to the imperial territory lists. Xerxes did some good stuff. He was generally good for the empire overall. Though admittedly, beating an Egyptian revolt is really another net neutral, because the only king who lasted more than two years to not do that aside from Cyrus for obvious reasons, was Artaxerxes II. The general trend of Achaemenid studies for 40 years has been downplaying Xerxes' invasion of Greece. That is starting to turn around now, and for good reason. No, it didn't disrupt the whole empire, but the Persian Empire was effing massive. Almost nothing disrupted the whole thing. However, Xerxes' invasion and its consequences wildly disrupted the Western Empire for the rest of imperial history. There is very direct cause and effect between Xerxes setting out in 481 through to the Peace of Callias in 449. Massive foreign support for Egyptian rebels, constant raiding and piracy around Cyprus and Phoenicia, repeated invasions and loss of territory in Anatolia, the first territorial losses in Persian history. And not just the first, Xerxes' defeat resulted in the largest territorial loss outside of the conquest of the whole empire, 
by Alexander the Great. The Persian fleet was destroyed three times at Salome, Macale, and Eurymedon. The initially successful invasion of Greece was a disaster in the end that probably could have been prevented if they just held a line at Thebes for a few years instead of pushing to Athens the second time. It led to the loss of not just Greece, but Macedon, Thrace, the Black Sea coast, many islands conquered by Cambyses and Darius, and huge swaths of Hellenized Anatolia, cutting Persian access off from the coast. Fortunately for Xerxes' ranking, he held the empire together and kept the interior peaceful, even as the Greeks beat his head in on the western front. He left it in a good enough place that even a succession crisis didn't do much to damage it, because the number five spot goes to his son, Artaxerxes I. You'll notice a trend here. The upper tier of great kings, the greatest kings, follow the opposite trend from their lower-ranked compatriots. Artaxerxes I started in a precarious position. He was young, just about 25. His father was assassinated in the night, and he woke to find himself surrounded by the most powerful nobles at court. He was told it was his eldest brother's fault and oversaw the subsequent execution. For seven months, Artabanus ruled as de facto regent, see the beginning of this episode, and out west, the Greeks were still pillaging his coast. Then, everything pulled together. Satrap Megabizus revealed the truth. Artaxerxes killed Artabanus, then defeated his brother and Artabanus' sons on the battlefield. When he finally turned his attention to the west, he expertly assigned Megabizus to combat the newly emerged alliance of Egyptian rebels and Athenian invaders giving his officers permission to rebuild their naval strength before attacking the Egyptians. When preparations were complete, they swept through Egypt, defeated the rebels, and chased off the Greeks. Artaxerxes attempted to intervene in Greece and win Sparta as an ally during the First Peloponnesian War, only failing because the Spartans refused. Instead, Artaxerxes leveraged the Greek conflict to establish the Peace of Callias, bringing an end to open warfare in exchange for allowing Athens to govern his subjects. Domestically, Artaxerxes faced down Megabizus and his sons in the first-ever satrapal revolt and won through a combination of force and negotiation. He completed the final additions for the Persepolis complex and built the Call of 100 Columns as a permanent replacement for the tent Xerxes had lost in Greece. When Artaxerxes died of natural causes, the empire was in the most stable place it had ever been, even if it wasn't the largest territorial extent. Everything would have been fine if he had accounted for the animosity between his own sons, but Xerxes II, Sogdianus, Ochus, and Arsites were not about to let a good thing go to waste. And they destabilized it themselves. That makes it a bit funny that the number four position actually goes to Ochus, 
aka Darius II. Yeah, his decision to make a bid for king in 424 dramatically upended the empire for a couple years, and sparked an economic recession in Mesopotamia, and allowed the Marashu family, a group of lower-class merchants, to achieve a near-monopoly on noble property management and royal infrastructure. It was all a necessary consequence of taking power, and Darius II did take strides to fix it over the course of his reign. After securing the throne and defeating the last of his brothers, Darius and his sister-wife Parasadis established the most well-connected and politically powerful iteration of the Achaemenid house. He was the only king besides Cyrus the Great to not face an Egyptian revolt in his reign, and Cyrus didn't rule Egypt. The closest he came was the minor internal struggle on Elephantine between the Jewish-ish Yahweh worshippers and the priests of Kanum, which was easily handled by his satrap Arsimedes. Megabizus had thrown the doors open to further satrap revolts, and there was no going back, but Darius managed his challengers successfully by carefully selecting loyal allies who would only be made more loyal when rewarded for defeating the rebels. When the Hadarnid revolt broke out in Armenia, Darius remained popular enough to have loyalists put a stop to it without warfare. In the aftermath, when Parasadis went on the warpath and sought a wholesale massacre of every Hadarnid, including her own daughter-in-law, Statera, Darius was wise enough to step in at his son, the future Artaxerxes II's request. Not only did he save Statera, but an unnamed son of the rebel Teratukmes, and Tissaphernes, his recently appointed satrap in Lydia. Domestically, Darius II oversaw a time of general peace and stability outside of Anatolia. Egypt was calm enough for its satrap to take a vacation. In Babylon, when it became clear that the Marashu had exceeded their station, Darius and Parasadus' friends and allies orchestrated their downfall and assumed direct control over formerly Marashu assets. Then there's Greece, deeply embroiled in the Peloponnesian War. Darius did what his father could not— he and his subordinates arranged an alliance with Sparta and used the Spartan fleet, backed with Persian gold and Persian armies, to retake the long-lost Greek cities of Anatolia. Despite the rampant politicking of the satraps, Darius accepted the embassy from Sparta when it arrived at court and heard them out, deploying his highly intelligent, if young and untested, son Cyrus, to oversee operations in the Ionian War. With both his private funds and the resources assigned by his father, Cyrus helped the Spartans orchestrate a decisive anti-Athenian victory, which paved the way for Sparta to sack Athens itself and establish what was supposed to be a long-lasting alliance. Of course, Cyrus the Younger and Artaxerxes II both ensured that it would never happen, but Darius left a better situation than he had been given, with all of Cambyses' empire once again in Persian hands. Number 3. The Luriston Bronze Medal goes to Artaxerxes III. 
I'm assuming if you're listening to this, his story is fresh in your mind, seeing as technically I still have an episode or two left in that narrative. Artaxerxes III inherited an empire in flames, admittedly some that he lit himself when he assassinated his brothers. He sat down on the throne immediately after returning from a successful campaign to repel the Egyptian invasion and had to work out a way to smother the ashes of the great satrap's revolt. Artaxerxes III looked back to his father and grandfather's reigns, probably even his great-grandfather, and immediately noticed a consistent theme in the worst rebellions. Mercenaries. For more than a century, the Western satraps had free reign to employ their own armies on the basis that it would defend the empire from Greek invaders. But Artaxerxes II had established the king's peace, and nobody in Greece in 358 had the capacity to challenge him. Artaxerxes III stripped these satraps of their independence, kneecapping their capacity to revolt. Of course, this backfired briefly with Artabazus, but that conflict allowed Artaxerxes III to prove the veracity of his new tactics by sending royal reinforcements to fight without needing standing mercenaries. The same conflict coincided with the Athenian Social War, which gave Artaxerxes III the perfect opportunity to enforce the king's peace, demanding Athens back down and acknowledge the authority of the great king. Then it was off to Egypt. He made a valiant first attempt, building on his father's failures and experiences, but the empire wasn't quite ready. A renewed rebellion, possibly sparked by the same concerns as the Great Revolt, began in Phoenicia, but not only did the great king return to conquer them, Artaxerxes used Phoenicia as a springboard to carry his momentum forward into Egypt, retaking the country as Cambyses had done 150 years earlier. He oversaw the restructuring of the provinces in the west to prevent revolt and foreign interference. He successfully negotiated alliances and pieces with all the powers of Greece, he restored the empire again to Cambyses' borders. Everything was going great. He just made two mistakes. First, he very understandably underestimated Macedon. Philip II was able to expand into a powerful kingdom, one which dominated almost all of Greece and Thrace without contest, and started eyeing up Anatolia. He took advantage of Artaxerxes' focus on Egypt, but the number three great king just never got a chance to deal with Philip. We might be able to guess that he would have handled it well. When Philip came too close to the border, Artaxerxes told him to back off, and Philip listened. But then came Artaxerxes III's second mistake. His advisor, Begoas, became too ambitious, without Artaxerxes realizing it, and murdered not just the king, but all of his sons plunging the empire into the wasted reign of Artaxerxes IV. Despite that, Artaxerxes III reconquered lost lands, stabilized the empire after the most chaotic events since Darius the Great, and had everything in place to pass on a stable and powerful state. Speaking of Darius the Great, that brings me to the top two. 
and good God, how do you choose between them? I'm sure anybody who's been keeping track knows which kings I have left. On one hand, who could be better for the empire than the man who created it? On the other hand, how does that compare to someone who upended the empire, restabilized it, expanded it, and centralized power as no Near Eastern ruler ever had? So coming in on the silver podium in Ahura Mazda's House of Song, in the number two spot, Cyrus the Great. Do I really even have to explain why Cyrus is highly placed? He took the Persians from the ruling class of the city of Anshan to the rulers, commanders, and masters of the greatest empire the world had ever seen in just 23 years. He rose up against his Median overlords in 553, turned the Median generals against Astyages within three years, and went on the greatest conquering spree the world had seen in a millennia, and would see for almost two millennia more. Between 553 and 540, he carved his way through Anatolia from Armenia to Lydia, taking everything in his path, and then turned around, went east, brought all of Iran and South Central Asia into the polity for the very first time. Then, in 339, he turned his attention to the jewel of the ancient world and took Babylon, with the capital itself falling to Cyrus's grandeur without a fight. Then, he just kept going, ultimately dying in battle in the northeast, still trying to expand the empire. While Cyrus was busy conquering, he left a trail of subordinates to establish Persian control along the way. When Lydia and the Ionian Greeks tried to resist, they were defeated and hunted down by Harpagus the Mede. Gubaru the Gutian took control of Babylon and helped turn it into a Persian capital. In Parsa, Cyrus had the ceremonial garden palace of Pasargadai constructed and began importing Babylonian artisans to build new palaces in the region west of what would one day be Persepolis. He was acclaimed for his relative clemency to those who surrendered and feared for his ability to destroy those who resisted. He formed marriage alliances to secure Media and Cappadocia, and possibly even to create an inroad with Egypt. On his deathbed, he established what should have been a stable division of power between his sons, which worked for almost a decade before continuous war and expansion took its toll. And ultimately, that is why the number one spot, the man with the golden stator, the man whose name literally became synonymous with gold coins, the greatest of all kings, the Vizrakista Kashayathea, is Darius the Great. For everything that is apparently great about Cyrus's foundation and expansion of the empire, there is a dark side. Cyrus never really stopped conquering to finish setting up and consolidating the politics of his new kingdom. Tribute and style of rule was evidently haphazard, and this eventually led Bardia, or whoever, to usurp Cambyses and try to right some of those wrongs. 
but that writing upset the Persian nobles who actually ran this new empire. Enter Darius. He and his six friends, or more accurately, his father-in-law and Gobrius's six friends, killed Bardia and triggered a gargantuan civil war and series of secession attempts spanning from Egypt to the Indus, and from Parsa to Margiana. Darius beat them all, and even went on to conquer the rest of the Indus Valley, most of the Black Sea, coastal Thrace, and Macedon. Unlike Cyrus, Darius instituted political and economic reforms to centralize Persian control over his territory. Taxes and tribute were standardized. All but the most willing and petty vassal kings were replaced by Persian satraps. Though it didn't really pan out, he even accepted submission from Athens. Darius took the disparate road networks constructed by a thousand years of empires and merchants and organized the royal road, branching out from his new capitals in Susa, which he rebuilt from scratch, and Persepolis, which he built from literally nothing aside from a mountain. He produced more than half of the known Achaemenid inscriptions and probably commissioned the invention of the old Persian script. Darius the Great reconquered and essentially refounded the empire. He established many of the royal titles that his successors used going forward. He established the system of satrapies that defined Achaemenid rule. He probably established the Achaemenid house as the royal family in the first place. He initiated expansion to Europe even if it caused problems down the line, resulting in most of our information about the Achaemenids in the modern world. He really is synonymous with the Persian Empire in almost every category. He was the greatest king of the kings of kings. But life moves on, and next time we are back to discuss the calendar system of the Avesta. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.